welcome to our Kingdom Culture Podcast. For today's message, we are thankful for what God is doing through this podcast to encourage and transform lives around the world. If you have a story to share about how God has encouraged or transformed your life through this podcast, we would love to hear about it by emailing us at mystory@kingdomculture.ca. If you would like to support this ministry financially to help us bring messages like this to you every week, you can do so online at kingdomculture.ca at the Give option. We also would love to connect with you on our social media, on Instagram and Twitter at KC Ottawa, and Facebook at Facebook slash Kingdom Culture Ottawa. We pray that you would experience God today and be encouraged through today's message. Enjoy! And uh, I'm going to just dive into this this morning. Usually Easter Sundays really stress me out, I'm not going to lie. Really stress me out. I always feel like this pressure like has to be like an Easter message, you know, it's like Christmas. Christmas often for me and Easter are always the most stressful Sundays because I, I feel this subconscious, whether people put it on me or not, it's like this, I have to do a, a typical Easter message, and I'm not going to do that today. So I actually feel less stressed than I usually do. So just letting you know, but it's Proverbs chapter 13. I'm going to open up with a really obscure message or passage to kind of open up the framework of where we're going to go today. And I really believe that this message is actually a prophetic word for us in this house, for you listening in your chair today. It's a prophetic word for how you are to position yourself for the rest of your life. So it's a, it's a heavy one. It's a big one. Are you ready? <laughs> Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 says this, one of my favorite verses, something that I honestly think about probably every couple days. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Powerful verse, powerful words in one verse. A good man, you can replace that with a good woman. A good man, a good woman leaves an inheritance. A good man thinks about the future. A good woman thinks about the future. A good man, a good woman, think about everything that they're facing right now is a part of creating something for a generation that they may even never see. Everything that you're going through right now, this is really the Easter message. Everything Jesus went through on the cross was about creating an inheritance for all humanity. In his death and in his resurrection, he paved a pathway for an inheritance. You know what an inheritance is? Something you never worked for. Something you did nothing for. You just sat there with open arms and received someone else's work, someone else's payment, someone else's perseverance, you actually receive the benefits of that. That's what an inheritance is. A good woman, a good man thinks about the future. That everything you do right now, both spiritually, naturally, is about creating something for the next generation and the generations to come. Now you may be thinking in here, well, maybe you don't have kids. I'm not talking about if you just have actual kids. Because everything you do is about helping the world around you. Everything you do right now is about leaving a legacy behind for those around you that are watching you. Maybe you have spiritual children or you will have spiritual children that you'll raise up in the ways of God. Or maybe you have actual children. Everything you do now is about paving a pathway for the future. A good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. In other words, a good man thinks about genera- thinks generationally. 
And I want to I want to tell I want to repeat this because I think so many of us have been reprogrammed in society to think for now and that's it. What do I want now? What do I need now? But how about what I need now so that the future is taken care of? Benjamin Franklin said it like this, if you plan, if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. You know that from the beginning of time, God had a plan. Before man ever even made the mistake, before Eve ever took that apple off the tree, or that fig, probably was a fig, took that amazing fig fruit off the tree, before any of that ever happened, God had a plan. Because God knew what man would do. God knew what humanity would do. Because he's all-knowing. But he still gives us the free choice. Gives us the free will. Because love never forces itself on another. So God gives us an invitation to love him or reject him. You can love me or reject me. It's up to you. I'll never force myself on you. And so man and women made this decision. It changed everything. But God had a plan. I think Benjamin Franklin was kind of getting a picture of God's heart because even God plans. God thinks about the future. God thinks generationally. And I remember several weeks ago, I was just praying. I don't even know where I was now. I was just praying. I was meditating on God. I was thinking on God. I was, I was doing something in, in a place of prayer. And I heard this statement from God so clear. Every generation fights for the next. Whether negative or positive, you're always in a fight. Like whether you know it or not. Like you're fighting for something. Whether it's for something bad or for something good. You're always fighting for something. You're fighting to survive. You're fighting for abundance. You're fighting to break through. You're fighting for something. Everyone's fighting for something. Some of you fought in your car on the way here as a married couple. And you're hoping this service would fix your, your, your argument. Like everyone fights for something. Everyone's fighting all the time. I mean, think about the last two years. How many fights have you seen break out? Nobody's seen any fights. Nobody's watched the news, clearly. God bless you. Nobody's on social media, right? God bless you. Everyone's fighting for something, but every generation fights for the next. Every generation fights for the next. And I had this, this I've been this, this mulling over this thought, and I've been thinking about this scripture a lot, about how everything I do right now, I think about, I want to fulfill my purpose. You know that when you fulfill your purpose, you actually pave the way for those after you to fulfill their purpose. You know, by you not fulfilling what God has called you to fulfill while you live is to rob the next generation of what they are called to do. Because in you fulfilling your purpose, you are developing areas of your life through perseverance. You are paving pathways, pioneering the ground for the next generation. And inheritance is literally this, where your ceiling becomes the floor of the next generation. That's really what inheritance is. That your end or your ultimate goal becomes the starting point of the next generation. Those that come after you, those that are around you. Maybe your nieces, maybe your nephews. Just any, anybody that's not your generation, you are fighting for, whether you know it or not. There's a whole generation fighting for things right now in society that aren't necessarily good. We have to also fight for things that are good for the greater good of our kids. 
to stand up for things that are for the greater good. This is what Solomon really is saying. It's not just talking about monetary means, like I want to give my kids like finances when they die. I want to leave spiritual legacy. I want to be remembered for something. I had this dream on Saturday morning where I was in this confrontation and somebody was getting violent with my kids. And I, I was observing it happening and this individual was getting violent with my kids a little bit, and one of my kids actually began to fight back, but I knew that he did not have the strength to fight back and win, and so I had to step in. And I was seeing a picture almost like what's happening right now in society that, you know, we, we often as parents or as the next generation or whatever generation you find yourself in think, oh, the next generation below has the strength but for us to leave an inheritance, we all have to be in the fight. We all have to be in the fight. But ultimately, we have a responsibility if we are that generation to fight on behalf of those that can't fight. To stand for those that can't stand. Inheritance is what we are fighting for to leave behind for every generation. Every generation. And I want to speak from this vantage point today because God is the God of Abraham, Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of the generations. That's why you hear that a lot in Scripture. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You never hear he's the God of Abraham, or he's the God of Jacob and Isaac, or he's the God of Isaac. You hear that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the generations. That's what inheritance looks like, where there is consistency through and through, and it keeps on continuing. So I want to talk today, I want to give us a charge on Easter Sunday, if I can, from this statement, fight for them. Fight for them. Write that down if you're taking notes. Fight for them through death and resurrection. Kind of like marriage, a marriage vow. You get on, you know, on stage in, a, in, a, in front of a, a bunch of your friends and family and you make a marriage vow and you commit, you commit that until death do us part in sickness and in health, hell or high water, you commit to stand strong and be committed to your spouse no matter what. You commit to go through the seasons that may feel like death so that you can come into resurrection. Because there are seasons, you guys, I'm speaking metaphorically, every one of us has seasons that feel like death. Extreme disappointment, extreme hopelessness, failed expectations, lost dreams, like excuses that stop us from doing the things that we're called to do and we feel like there's so much death and can we even pick it back up again is there hope again it's like you've been rotting you feel like you've been rotting or your dreams have been rotting in a tomb for more than three days and it's like is there any hope of 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 new life and resurrection again we all go through seasons that feel like death don't we i mean how many have felt that way we feel insignificant But those death seasons are simply just a setup for the victory seasons. If you feel like you're in a death season, the goal of God is to give you a promise of the resurrection and the victory seasons on the other side. It's in those seasons where God wants to show us what it looks like to align ourselves with his resurrection. Because he resurrected, we can resurrect speaking metaphorically, because he physically resurrected, we can spiritually resurrect and move through and become victorious in every area of our life. 
It's there. The promise is there. I don't know how long it's going to take you or take us to experience that promise sometimes, but the promise is there. There may be areas of your life that 20 years go by and you're persevering and you stand strong and you don't stop believing until the day you die. Maybe you never even see your breakthrough. I don't know. Whatever it is you're looking for. But the goal of the faith journey is to keep you in faith despite your circumstances. That no matter how much death feels is coming at you in your life, you can stand strong and keep moving forward through trauma, through losses and failures and all kinds of hard things. But thank God there's seasons where we feel resurrected again. Dreams and visions. And these are simply the cycles of all healthy spiritual life. Anybody in this room, if you are on a journey in relationship with God, you're going to have seasons and cycles where it feels like death in some seasons and feels like resurrection in other seasons. You're going to have moments where it feels like death. It's a moment where you feel like you're in resurrection. You're on cloud nine. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one in the room? Without a resurrection, there would be no inheritance. Without Good Friday, there would be no Sunday. Like, you need a death to have a resurrection. You need hard seasons to have a breakthrough. No one just gets the trophy. They have to play the game. They got to fight to win, right? The good thing is that God has already fought the fight, already fought the battle, so we know we get to win, but he still wants us to be part of the game. And we still have to play a role in being a part of the game, believing that we're going to come out as a win every time. That's the heart and hope of God for all of us. Really, what I'm talking about today is the core of the gospel and the Easter message. Let's read it in John chapter 19, verse 30. It says this, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. When he tasted the sour wine, he's on the cross. His last words were, it is finished finished, then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now listen to this. The Greek word, in the original manuscript, the Greek word for it is finished, that line, it is finished, the last words of Jesus really in this account, it is finished, and he bows his head. What was he really saying? Like what's finished? What was he really talking about? That word is telestai, and it means this in the Greek, a word that was used, this was actually a word used in business, meaning the debt is fully paid. It was a, a word that was used in business, meaning the debt has been fully paid. It was also used in judgment and the court system, which meant the sentence is fully served. The sentence for what? The punishment for sin has been fully served. Your sin mortgage has been paid off. You have this sin mortgage that you can't pay off. It's such a big mortgage, and now with inflation, prime rate going up, you're really in trouble. You can't pay off your sin mortgage. Jesus came in one moment. When he said, it is finished, he paid off your sin mortgage. All the debt that you owned, all the debt that you owed for your sin that you could never pay, he came and paid it off for you. That's what the word and the phrase, it is finished, actually means. It was also, also used as a military term, which meant the battle has been fully won. Like when he said it is finished, he really meant it is finished. Like you've got this. Like I've paid all the price. I've done all the work. All you have to do now is receive. 
The whole journey of spiritual life is receiving over and over again. Receiving, being reminded of who you are, being reminded of what he's done, being reminded of the death and the power of the resurrection, being reminded that you have one, being reminded that when you pray, he is listening and he does hear you, being reminded over and over again. The spiritual journey of your life is about being reminded over and over again that he's paid the full price. That's why it's called good news. Really, it's a statement of rest that says this, you now have an inheritance. You didn't work for any of this? I did it. I did it. Here's the inheritance. Wait, it's too good to be true. That's why it's a too good to be true gospel. That's why it was called a scandalous gospel. Too good to be true. You mean I don't have to do anything? Exactly. Because in the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, you had to do a lot. There was a whole bunch of doo-doos. No one likes the doo-doo. But the New Covenant, it was all about be. I get to be. I get to rest. Rest in his finished work. He did the doo-doo. He took care of your doo-doo because your doo-doo stunk. He took care of it, wiped you clean. Sorry for the illustration. And now you're free. It's the good news of the gospel. No more diapers. <laughs> Sorry. I, my mind went into a, uh, an ongoing slideshow visual as I was talking. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says this, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received what? An inheritance. Because we're connected with Christ, we have an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and makes everything work out according to his plan. Romans eight seventeen says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs. That means we have an inheritance. If you're an heir, you have an inheritance Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You're a co-heir with Christ. You share the same inheritance as God himself. That you never worked for. That he paid the price for. This is the Easter message. He died and he resurrected to pay the price for something you could never pay. To give you something you could never earn. Called an inheritance. People say, well, I'm a good guy. I'm a good woman. I'm a good person. I don't do this. I don't do that. That doesn't matter. Your goodness cannot be measured by goodness standards. It's only measured by God's standard. And the Bible says that you've all fallen short of God's standard. That's why Jesus came in and reestablished the new standard. That as long as you receive my finished work, you're good. You're good. So I want to outline really quick for you today three important realities that we are to fight for if we are going to leave an inheritance for the world around us. And I want to connect this to the resurrection and the context of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And maybe every hard season that we are going through right now or we've gone through, I believe that you got to, God will speak to you this morning through this. I know you're like, wow, that was his intro. Yes, that was my introduction. Number one, number one, number one very important especially in this season, is we have to fight for truth. If we're going to leave an inheritance, a good man leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren, we have to fight for truth. We have to fight for truth. Like, truth is so whacked these days. Everyone has their truth. Yeah, there's your truth and then there's the truth. Very different. There's your truth and there's the truth. It's the key to freedom. But let me just tell you this, that truth itself is not the key to freedom. Truth itself is not the key to freedom. It says this in John chapter 8, verse 31. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How will the truth set you free? By knowing the truth. The truth won't set you free unless you know the truth. You're like, why am I not free? question is, do you know the truth? Knowing the truth is very different than just, I have a truth. There is a truth. That word for knowing means to know experientially. That's what it literally means. You will be set free because you have experience in knowing the truth. It's an evolution. It's a progress over time. You're, it's unfolding more and more to you as you go and as you grow. As you get to know God, that truth is ho- hopefully every day setting you more free. As you know the truth, you will be set free. Knowing it experientially, through personal experience, the word is. Through personal experience. You can know about God and not know him. You can come to church and not be the church. Just because you stand in a mechanic's garage doesn't make you a car. You have to have a car. You go stand in someone's garage doesn't make you a car. You could come to church and not know God. You could know about the stuff and actually have no relationship. It's the truth that will set you free, but only by knowing the truth. That's John 8, verse 31 to 32. We live in this day where faith has been so dummied down to believing in allegories, illustrations, rather than the impossible we see in Scripture. We look at Scripture as a book of supernatural fairy tales rather than supernatural faith stories that actually took place. We've lost our perspective on truth. We have placed God under the subjection of our reasoning rather than submitting our reasoning under God, the God who's always been beyond our ability to reason. Because we don't understand it here, it must not be true. Because I have a bad experience here, maybe the way that this is saying what it's saying is not really true. And we find ways to justify our belief systems based upon often our bias, our negative bias, and our trauma, and don't always realize it, and then they say, this is the truth. No, that's your truth. And because you don't know the truth, you've created your own truth, and you're calling it the truth. And it's just not the truth. Unfortunately for so many people, they've been able to believe in the death of Jesus as a historical figure, but not his resurrection, because it's just too far out there. It's easy to believe that Jesus died, but it's really a different story to believe that Jesus resurrected. That's why it was a scandalous gospel. It was foolishness. It didn't make sense, but that's what faith is. It doesn't make sense. If it made sense, you wouldn't need faith. It's really sad what's happening in the world around us. Even in believers, there's so many unbelieving believers. They believe things to be true about God, but they've missed these basic things. There's no faith, you guys. There's no Christianity without a resurrection. There is no Christianity, no faith, without a resurrection. The thing that defines Jesus' 
differently than every other small G God is that he didn't just die and take the punishment of the world's sin on, in his body. He resurrected. He resurrected. This makes him stand out. He's Big Papa. He's Big G. Capital G, the only capital G. The one way, the truth, the life. Jesus said it about himself. No one can come to the Father except through me. I am the narrow gate. I am the hard way. That's offensive. So many people couldn't handle that. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? Resurrection, you will be saved. The resurrection is at the core of the salvation experience. To not believe in the truth of the resurrection is to not believe and have faith in the God that you say you have faith in. He didn't just die, he resurrected. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, I love it. Even when we were dead in trespasses, our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus resurrected, so did we. We became united as one. And he's seated in heavenly places right now. We have this amazing, the Bible says we have citizenship now in heaven because we're united as one. We have an inheritance. We're connected. We're co-heirs. We're like walking like a Siamese twin with Jesus, side by side with Jesus. Everywhere we go, sharing in the inheritance. And, and this is really like, this is really why we get baptized. And we're doing a water baptismal uh, experience next Sunday, and I'd encourage you, if anybody in this room has never been water baptized, I'm not, I'm not talking about when you were a child and you were sprinkled. Water baptism is the only biblical water baptism in Scripture where you're fully submersed. Jesus did it. The God himself did it as a model for us when we're at the age of understanding and accountability and can say, hey, I'm all in. And it's, it's a confession that your faith is legit and real. This is why we get baptized, just as Jesus went under in death and died. We go under the water. It's representation of dying to our old ways. We come up out of the water, represents the resurrection, coming up into new life. And it's a statement of faith that is a huge marker for our journey. And I want to encourage anybody that's not done it, don't complicate it, just do it. We'll push you in if we need to. We'll tackle you, we'll like rock bottom you into the water. Whatever we gotta do, just do it. Don't complicate it. If resurrection is our promise in this life and the next, so if we know we have victory in this life and in the next, then all of a sudden death has a purpose. Death has a purpose. Challenges, the losses, the failures, all the things that feel like death have purpose for us. I know that sometimes we get so caught up in the death part and we can't see the purpose and we, we stay there and we get locked there. But there's a purpose. I was, I was, we were doing communion with my kids on Thursday night before Good Friday and I, I went really like a little bit different this time in the, in the storyline story of the death and resurrection. I went to like really grotesque detail. My five-year-old daughter, my youngest is five, my oldest is almost 13 and 
my youngest was five, and, and I was talking about how, like, when Jesus, he was, like, he was being spit on, he was being, like, beaten, he was being, like, he was rejected, he was being cursed at, he didn't say anything, and they were whipping him, and, and all of a sudden, his organs were being exposed, and his back, I was getting really blood everywhere, and I was just giving her, like, a, like a real, like, rated R passion of the Christ experience, right? And, uh, and like blood everywhere, 39 lashes. He's carrying this crazy cross. They took these seven-inch nails and, and put it right through the median nerve right there and so they could hold him up on the cross and then put a massive seven-inch nail through uh, his feet as well to hold him up there with a, a crown of thorns that dug into his skull that released blood. And, and it was crazy. And, and, and she was hearing all this, right? And I'm like watching her. But I, thought I wanted to give them a picture of like the, the gruesomeness of the death. Because without a full understanding of the gruesomeness of the death, there is not a full understanding of the power of the resurrection. She started bawling her eyes out. She's like, she's like, I don't want them to hurt Jesus. It was like, went off. It was like super cute. It was super cute. She's like, why are they hurting Jesus? And then she went into this space for a moment. She's like, I think she just had like a sort of a, just kind of just got confused for a second. Because I was talking about how tomorrow this was happening to him, right? She's like, well, so there's no point of talking to him anymore? He's already dead. <laughs> so I'm going to talk to him anymore. He's dead. I'm like, no, no, no. This happened like 2,000 years ago. He's actually alive right now. Anyways, it was a funny conversation. But all I have to say is she was so focused on the death that it took me a while to get her to the resurrection part. And so, so many of us can get so focused on the hard and the death and the, the gruesome and the dark we miss the victory in life. We wallow in the death that's around our life. We wallow in the pain. We wallow in the hurt. We wallow in what's happened to us. We wallow in what I can't do and why it's not working out for me. And we stay there rather than positioning ourselves to believe in faith that death, if death has a purpose, that purpose is for resurrection. And hopefully this can encourage some of you in the room, whether it's in your marriage, your family, your personal life, your business, that every one of those areas touches death at some point. But every one of those areas is destined to touch resurrection if you just let it. We have to fight for the truth. Number two, fight for the supernatural. If we're going to leave an inheritance, if we're going to fight for the next generation, those around us, and actually leave something of significance, spiritually speaking. We've got to fight for the supernatural. This was the power behind the beginning growth of the book of Acts church. Like I said it in John 8, like if you don't know the truth, you have nothing. You can say Jesus is the truth all you want, but if you don't know the truth, you have nothing. You can be a good person, but if you don't know the God who is good, you have nothing. It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, and with great power, the word is dunamis, explosive, miraculous power, the apostles gave witness, which is evidence, that's what the word is, evidence, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power and great grace. This, is, this, this was what was fueling the growth of the book of Acts church when, when, when the church started, as we know it, the reason why we do what we do today as the ecclesia, which is the church. The church isn't a building. It's never been a building, it's, except for the old covenant. It's actually the people. It's the people. 
Wherever they gather is the church that make up the bricks in the wall, the metaphoric building. You are the metaphoric building. You are the spiritual house of God. That's what you are. And with great power, when that all began, it's because the momentum was because of the power, the supernatural. They fought to to demonstrate the supernatural power that only could be demonstrated because of the resurrection. It's the power of God. They gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Paul also says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, in prison, he penned these words, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Man, close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes for a second. Just imagine, imagine plugging your hand or finger, actually no, imagine taking a knife and putting it right now as deep as you can into an outlet. What would happen? Now take that and times it by a number you don't even know, you can't even name. That's what it's like to know the power of the resurrection. It's a power that you can't even quantify. It's a power that you can't even define. It's a power that has a number of wattage, a wattage that you can't even give a number to. Like, it's so powerful and so dangerous. If you want to live the normal, boring Christian life, don't experience the power of God. But this was what drove the growth and momentum of the beginning of what we call the church. It was the power of God because of the power of the resurrection. And Paul said, I want to know him, not just him. I want to know his power, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. How will you be remembered? I, last weekend, last Saturday, I was in Toronto with a group of like 15 different leaders, some people that were connected to in Canada. Most of these leaders were from the Ontario area, and we were all together, business leaders, uh, itinerant ministers and pastors, we were all together, and uh, we were literally from like 12 o'clock until 11, 12 p.m. to 11 p.m. at night, outside of taking bathroom breaks, a dinner, and a lunch, we literally prophesied and prayed for each other for like literally 10 hours straight. Like it was, it was crazy. And... When it was our turn to, to receive prayer, it was pretty, really, well, it was really, it's always impactful whenever we do this, but it was like about an hour-long prophetic word. And I won't go into the details, but there was one woman that was like, she was, she was crying over me and Michelle as she was praying. And the tone of the, like the general tone of the word was just about reminding us of who we were reminding us of who we were because sometimes it's easy to forget who you are and then live a life that you've never been called to live because you've forgotten who you are and I know one thing one thing to be true about all of us in this room is that we are all called as spiritual beings to fight for the supernatural because that's who you are You you were never a human first. You were a spirit first. And you actually existed before the foundation of the world began in God, in God's image. But sin corrupted that image. Sin corrupted that image. You know, you're not actually born in the image of God, technically speaking. You're born into the image 
of sin. That's why Jesus came to die, so you could be born again. You wouldn't need to be born again if you were already born in the image of God. You were born in the image of sin. Inside, there was the seed of God, but it was shrouded in sin because of one man's choice. We need to fight for the supernatural. That leads me to the next point, last point, number three. We need to fight for identity. Fight for identity. Kind of what I was just saying just a second ago, and I want to continue on that thought. It's all about who are you? Who are we? There's so much confusion around identity in this season. We need to rediscover who we are. And you know the only way to discover who we really are? I believe it's actually found right here in Colossians 3, verse 3. It says this, for you died to this life, speaking of someone who's let Jesus into their life, you've died to this life, and listen to this, and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. Kind of sounds like there was a fake life, a false life. Exactly. Your false life is when you were first born not knowing Jesus. It was an unfulfilled life. It was a life that did not know its full capacity, did not know its full grace, born into the image, under the image, shrouded in the image of sin, defined by past mistakes, not even by you, by generations before you. But Jesus came to remove the stain of that sin, the grip of that sin off of your life. He came to re-identify you, we're born into this world and we're confused. We're like, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I am. I want to be this. I want to be that. I feel like this today. I feel like that today. I'm this gender. I'm that gender. No, you were born one way. And guess what? If you don't know who you are, it's because you've not been born again yet. When you're born again and you discover who he is, you will re- you'll actually have the revealing of who you really always were. It says here, your real life is hidden in, with Christ in God. So if you want to find you, find Christ. Because where is your real life? Hidden in Christ. It's like waiting for you. He's like waiting for you. You discover me, you discover you. That's what he's saying. You find me, you find you. You're confused about who you are. You're confused about your identity, what you're called to in life, why you feel certain things, why you feel certain ways. I would propose this to you. If you want to figure that out, Find Christ because you'll figure it out that way. Search for Christ. Are you here? Are you listening? Are you in the room this morning? We had a different identity when we were first born. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. I'm almost done. It says this, For since by man came death, speaking of Adam, since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So what he's saying here is... Man, one man, Adam, one choice, invited death into this earth. The only reason why there is death is because there was sin. If Adam and Eve never sinned and they chose to obey God, there would not be death. There had to be death because there had to be a punishment for sin or else people would live in their sin for eternity. So there had to be an end. So Jesus came to end that, to give an opportunity for the ending of that. One man, Adam, as a result of one man's choice, all men suffered. But then Jesus came, and he was called the second Adam. And he came to bring us into a resurrection, a new life. 
Are you hearing these words this morning? I just really believe God wants to encourage you. Jesus also fought for his identity, you guys. We think that the identity thing is just like a, a, a human thing. But Jesus, as fully God, fully man, went through an identity crisis almost. I mean, that, that's kind of theologically incorrect. I guess not almost. But he, he modeled the fight for his identity in Matthew chapter 4. He was baptized. He was dunked under the water. God said to him, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Pronounced his identity as a son. He pronounced his identity as a son. Right after he was driven into the wilderness for 40 days he was tempted. And the first two temptations, Matthew 4 verse 3, Matthew 6, and Matthew 9, uh, 4 verse 9. The first two temptations started off with, if you really are the son of God. If you really are the label that God just identified you as on your baptism, then do these things. His identity was being challenged. This just shows us how much more us. If we're going to leave something behind, we have to fight for identity, who we are. Live out who we are confidently. Walk the walk. We're called to walk. Be the example. Persevere through hard times. Don't quit when it gets hard. It's easy to quit. It's harder to not quit. And then verse 9, verse 9, his last temptation was fall down and worship me. If I can't get your identity, maybe I can get your attention. Because if I can get your attention to worship me, then I'll get your identity. Culture is trying to get our attention to worship something else other than God so it can attack our identity. We have to fight for our identity. John 11, verse 25, Jesus said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. He is the resurrection. I want you to stand up just for a second. Before we do communion, I want you to stand up.